Now you probably realize I've got a bit of a coughy, coughy, chesty cough. But um, the Lord was gracious this morning. We got through this morning, and I trust we will again this evening. So bear with me if you would. I just realized I must stop coughing because I'm coughing into the microphone, and I might be blasting away. Yeah, so I'll try not to cough there. I'll cough this way. Anyway, let's, the Lord is good, and let's trust him. Let's bow our heads a moment. Again, Father, we thank you for your word. And again, we seek your help to preach it, to hear it, to apply it to our hearts. Do us good by the Spirit tonight. For Jesus' sake, amen. If you'd like to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we've been looking at this um, for a little while, whilst I've been here in the Sunday evenings. And uh, we started off with uh, verse 1. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we faint not, or could be translated, we do not grow weary. And I think if ever there was a verse that is a sentiment that contained in a verse that is so necessary, needful, that's the days in which we live, such surely uh, is this verse. Uh, there's a tendency always amongst the people of God uh, to lose heart. Uh, there's so much... Uh, that would cause us genuinely to lose heart. Uh, we look at the world around, and it seems to be getting worse by the day. Uh, you don't need me to tell you that. You just need to put your radio on, or you, or, or you, or you listen to the news, or read newspaper. And almost every day, there's something that is that is just bad news and anti-God and anti-Scripture, and and it's so sad that's happening out there. And uh, it's over the whole world, things are happening almost weekly, tragedies and shootings and killings and terrible things going on. And, uh, and then you look at the state of the church. Uh, it, it's a terrible thing. You know, I was thinking about this this morning. The, the world is dictating to the church. Now, it's always tried to influence the church. It's always rebelled against the church's teaching. But now the world is saying to the church, this is what you must believe, and this is what you must do. Hang about. What's on about? This should be the other way around. The church should be saying to the world, this is what God says. This is what you should do, because God said it. But it's total reversal. Up, and there are men in high authority who are changing their views and changing their practices to placate the world. And it's not a good world. It's as if they're doing good things. Oh, that's a good idea. We had never thought about it. I, I like that idea. Yes, we'll take that on board. All the influence from outside the church, from the world, is tending to be downwards. And dare I say it, in my own opinion, some of it is really devilish. It's from the pit. Anyway, and then we look at the world, we look at the church, and then you look inside. Am I the only one that feels despondent sometimes? I look in here as if they're all saying, Colin, the big problem for you is not the church and the world. It's Colin. You're the problem, really, for you. And you get downhearted. You get, you get weary, and you, and you tend to lose heart. And there's an enemy, of course, who would seek to stir it up. So Paul writes, he writes from, from a background in the two Corinthians, of himself being downcast. He knows it. He's not, not some supersonic apostle that has never had a weary day or a sleepless night, who's never shed a tear. He's just gone through, woo like a, an express train, you know. Um, no problems. And later on in the chapter, we'll talk about some of the problems he had uh, known and gone through. So you could, in a sense, use that verse to go all through the other little verses, as we have done, to encourage ourselves. Look at this verse. doesn't it encourage you. doesn't it encourage you. Yes, uh, it says in verse 3, but if our gospel is hid, it's hid to them that are lost. Yes, there are people who are lost. And the God of this world is instrumental in, in keeping them lost. But thank God you have a Savior who came to seek and to save the lost. That's our message, and that we, we have a Savior who loves to save lost people, uh, to, uh, to search and rescue. 
And that encourages us, doesn't it? We're not on our own, dear ones, in this. It's not that we are against Hailsham uh, and nobody else cares. Our God cares. Our Savior cares. The Holy Spirit cares. And this is an encouragement. And then the gospel itself, 5 and 6. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus our Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts uh, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Wow. If that doesn't say, cause you to say, wow, then there's something wrong with you. It's a magnificent little verse. Well, I want to go on to verse 7 tonight, right, and just verse 7, I think there's more than enough there to keep us uh, busy for a half hour or so. And this is what the apostle says in verse 7. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Right? We have but... But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. And we've got very three very simple little headings. The vessels, the treasure, and the reason. It's not too complicated, is it? You can take it home tonight and have a sandwich before you go to bed or whatever you do and think about that and get up tomorrow and go to work or do what you do, protect your pension, and think about that, the vessels, the treasure, and the reason. And they're all obviously there in the verse. Okay, let's get down to it. The apostle says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Sometimes translated, jars of clay. Commoner, garden, jars of clay. And the Greek, apparently, there's an emphasis on the Fragility. Uh, these little clay pots are easily broke. All right? Um, they were made cheap and cheerful. Various sizes, um, small ones, big ones of clay, which was easily available. Uh, they'd mold them, and then they'd put them out in the sun to dry, and then within a day or so, they were hardened, and then they would use them for all kinds of reasons, mainly around the house. You'd have uh, pots to keep liquids in, pots to keep food in, seed in, vegetables, all kinds of things you would keep your, uh, what you would use these pots for. Some of them, if you made them small enough, put a little lid or a little, little, little uh, hole and you put a little wick in it, you could fill with, uh, with, with oil and you could have a little wick and you'd light it. It'd be like a little, what we might call a penny lamp, all right? Cheap and cheerful. Earthen vessels. Now, I, I thought about this. I thought, well, don't spend too much time on it, Colin, because people know what clay pots are. I'm assuming that, right? And because uh, I, as I've told before, I've watched some of this um, repair shop, and there's a lady there who mends ceramics. Oh, she's wonderful. She, I mean, people have brought her in, you know, a load of cracked vase is just cracked in bits. And she looked at it and she said, what happened? I dropped it. Oh, right. What do you want me to do with it? I put it back together. Okay. Right. Why? Because it belonged to my granny. Right? It already belonged to a granny or a granddad or something. Anyway, and I think, she can't do that. How can she do it? It's in bits. And she put it together. And she had amazing skill. And there are vases. And... Uh, and Clarice Cliff, is it? Cla I don't know who Clarice Cliff is, but I know it's, you buy your stuff, it's good, because I've seen bargain and right? And it's wonderful stuff. Now, there's lots of wonderful pottery out there. And, and the more expensive, the more rare, can cost thousands of pounds. We are not talking posh vases, or vases, if you prefer. We're not talking posh vases here. We're talking about ordinary little clay pots that we used around the home. And when they were broken, they were broken and they were chucked out. Or they were used perhaps as some basis for construction or whatever. But they were just used, cracked out, and even cracked ones would be used until they couldn't be used for anything else. And they were moved down the line. My dear wife, lover, 
she loved buying mugs. Now, there was a time when folk drank tea with a little finger out of a china. Now, some of you might have got a china set at home, all right? You don't normally use it, but if I've got special visitors, you'd bring the china out. I think that's long gone, but... And in our house, we had about 500,000 mugs. Um, and she loved buying mugs. Um, okay. But then some of them got chipped. And she said, right, throw them out. Oh, how can you throw out a mug that you've held with love and drunk from for years? How can you throw it out? So I would throw it out, but it would land in the garage or in the shed. And then it, I would put... Uh, Paintbrushes on, not some bolts in it, or a bit of old oil in it. Um, you, you can't chuck mugs out, can you? Chipped mugs, doesn't matter, cracked mugs. They've all got a little use. Now, why, why am I making a big thing about this? Because these mugs, these clay vessels, chipped, cracked, they're the vessels that are mentioned here. They're the vessels, spiritually speaking, that God uses. Now, would it be insulted if I said to you tonight, my dear brother, my dear sister, you're an old clay pot. Would that upset you? Would it upset you if I said, and for some of you, you're cracked. You're a cracked pot. <laughs> Sorry. Right? That that's what you are. And that's all you are. Well, that's not very complimentary, uh, Mr. Richard calling me a cracked pot, calling me an old clay vessel. Well, bear with me, bear with me, because you'll see what God says about cracked clay pots. You'll see what God does with clay pots, and it's glorious, and it's wonderful. Thank God for that. We are mortal, and we are frail, and Yet God uses these little clay pots for his glory. You know, I love this. I know I, I, I keep saying it and saying it and saying it. I said it this morning. But I love this I, theme in the Bible where God uses nothings and nobodies. We looked at it with Samuel. This family, nobody knew them. No, this is nothing special about them. But God used them. And God is like that. He often uses that kind of thing. And this is why I quote you so often from 1 Corinthians, and I'm going to quote again to you. To you. Paul is, is talking about the gospel going to the Greeks and to the Jews, to the religious people, to the clever people, the wise people, according to this world. And he says, you know, the trouble is, you know, um, the, the wisdom of this world is not the wisdom of God. Where is the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world. God doesn't normally, I'm going to say that carefully, and I'll, I'll explain in a moment, God normally doesn't use posh phrases. And there's a reason for it, which we'll come to. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. Now see how wise God is. If our salvation depended on our cleverness, on our intellectual abilities, on our achievements, if it depended on that, let's be honest, there wouldn't be many of us saved. But God in his wisdom has decided that salvation is not going to be according to cleverness and worldly wisdom, and intellectualism. Now, God has decided that. It says, the world, for that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching and that of the gospel to save them that believe. The Jews require a sign. Give us a sign. Show us who you are. Give us a sign. Give us a sign. That's what they want, a sign. Something physical, they can see with, with, with their faculties, feel, touch here. The Greeks seek after wisdom. 
Oh, what great philosophers there were in the days of the Greeks. They would argue and discuss uh, and, uh, and some great philosophies. We don't want to diminish that. But that wasn't God's way of bringing the gospel. But we preach Christ crucified. The Jews is a stumbling block. We want a Messiah who is victorious. We want a Messiah like King David. We want a Messiah who will lead us against the enemies, who will smash the Romans and restore to us our land. That's what we want. A Messiah who is crucified is totally contrary to anything we can think about. That can't be right. Yes, it was right, and it was in fulfillment of their own prophecy. Isaiah 53, for example. He preached Christ crucified, and the Jews a stumbling block, and the Greeks foolishness. What? You're saying that the way to heaven, the way to salvation, the way to peace, the way to forgiveness is through a man dying on a cross? That's stupid. That's illogical. There's no reason in that. And humanly speaking, there isn't, because it's not human, it's God. It's come down from God. Do you remember that Paul has a discussion with the philosophers at the Agogropolis, um, Mars Hill, and, and he's discussing things. And Paul could discuss it at their level. And then he brings in the gospel. And he talks about Jesus who was crucified and risen again. And then they started laughing at him. There we are, we thought you were an intelligent, intellectual man on par with us. And now you're talking about somebody who rose, rose from Dead men don't rise. Well, they don't, normally. But here's the eternal Son of God, raised by the power of God, and so on. So, but unto them who are called, Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And then see this. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Now, God is not a fool. But if he was a fool, his foolishness would be wiser than the wisdom of men. It's an exaggeration to prove a point, if you like. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. God is not weak. But if he was weak, his weakness would be greater than the greater strength of man. Again, it's an exaggeration to prove the point. For you see your calling, brethren, that how not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. There are very few vases in God's collection, posh vases, nicely decorated, and so on. Almost all, but not all, almost all are chipped clay. And the things of the world, um, and God, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And things of the world and things which are despised, base things of the world and things which are despised, hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. And in a moment we'll come back to the reason. He gives there. Now, as I was thinking about this, I thought, Colin, you need to be a little bit careful. Because although most of us are chip pots, clay pots, sometimes there are Christians who are very clever. I think there's a danger for us, myself, you, who are not highly intelligent and not highly educated, to kind of exalt our lowliness so it looks better than those who are actually intelligent and well-educated. Right? I don't want to do that. God has raised up some great men and women who have been very highly educated. Two come to mind. Um, one still with us, Dr. Peter Masters, a very clever, very capable man. Uh, some would say a giant amongst men. Another um, is Dr. Marty Lloyd-Jones. He was a medical doctor, you know this. Uh, he was assistant to Lord Hoda in Harley Street, 
uh, Lord Hola was a, the personal, assist, a personal physician to the king and had the Lloyd Jones stayed in the medical um, business profession, he would have no doubted followed suit. And he would have become he would have become the physician, personal physician to the king. He was a great intellectual, a great logician. He, logic was a big thing. Diagnostic skills were amazing, medically and then spiritually. Great men, clever men. But you see, the greatness was not in so much of what they were in and of themselves intrinsically, but that which God conferred on them because they were great men in humility. They were great men spiritually. And ultimately, that made them great. So we, we don't want to say, you know, this gospel is only for clowns like me and chip pots. There are some vases. Thank God there are. And God does use men like that. And God raises up these people. And there's some amazing people out there. There's a man called John Lennox. He's a, uh, he's a professor. I'm not sure if he's Cambridge or Oxford, but anyway, he's a professor of some science or whatever. He's a, got a magnificent brain on things scientific. And he's a godly Christian man. And sometimes he discusses things and debates with people like Richard Hawkins and, uh, and uh, Dawkins and others. And uh, he's on their level, intellectually, scientifically. And he can argue for creation. from a scientific point of view, apart from a biblical point of view. So you see what I'm saying? Thank God that this gospel is for all kinds, all shapes, all sizes, all cleverness, and those are without. And ultimately, we're on the same level. We're on the same level by grace, by faith, in Christ, in Christ alone. There'll be nobody in heaven who'll be there because they're so clever, they worked it out for themselves. The cleverest men in the world tonight cannot see the truth of the gospel because they're blind spiritually. It's a question of sin and no faith in the truth of God. I have a friend. I may have told some of you this, so it just fits in here. I have a friend called Howell Jones. Now, Hal Jones, uh, when I first met him, was the principal of the London Theological Seminary when I went. And he was a very clever man. Came from Batalbot. Um, he did his BA, MA, and whatever he did in theology. Um, and then he got his doctorate, PhD, from Westminster University Seminary in California. He was a very able man, but a very godly man. And I knew his dad. His dad was Will Jones, William, right? But everybody called him Will Jones. He was an elder in the Presbyterian Church in Patalbot. Um, he would have been around in the days of Dr. Lloyd Jones down there. And his father was a steel worker, a manual worker. He was a good and godly man, but I don't know that he ever went to college, university, whatever. He was a hard-working man, as most of them were in those days. And when uh, Mr. Jones, Reverend Jones, became Dr. Jones, um, I used to, can you believe this? I used to tease him a little bit. He used to call me Lyshan. Lyshan, what do you want now? I said, uh, well, congratulations, you know, Dr. Jones. Would you write me out a doctor's paper? Because I don't feel well, you know, I want a day off. He'd laugh, ha, ha, ha. And I said to him one day, uh, Dr. Jones, yes, what do you want? I said, you know what your dad would have said, don't you? He looked at me suspiciously. What would my dad have said? I said, well, old Will Jones. He'd have said, Howard, Howard, my boy, congratulations that you've got your doctorate. You know, you, you worked hard for it, and... You, and you deserved it, and, and well done, you know, well done. But just remember, 
you're still only a sinner saved by grace. And he, he looked at me, he laughed, he smiled, he said, yeah, my dad would say that. My dad would say that. Because after all his qualifications, he was still only a sinner saved by grace. And that applies to us all. Right, enough about chips and fame. Let's move on to the second one. Treasure. In these clay pots, some of them chipped, some of them cracked, in these clay pots there is treasure. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Now, the word treasure is actually a plural word. It really means treasure store. All right? Um, all kinds of treasures are in this, uh, in this word. So the question is, what is the treasure? Now, we could say all kinds of things, spiritually, that this treasure is. All right? But if we confine ourselves to the immediate context, right, from verse 5, for we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. I would suggest to you that this treasure is the gospel, the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the treasure. I know that includes all kinds of things. It's a vast treasure. It's a great treasure. It's the message we preach and the message we believe. It's a message that tells us about God, about the Lord Jesus, about the Holy Spirit. It's a message that tells us about the triune Jehovah. It's a message that talks about the covenant of grace and of creation and of providence and of heaven. It tells us about salvation and forgiveness of sins and peace with God and reconciliation and adoption and sanctification and justification and all the great truths of God's word, election and predestination, every final perseverance of the saints. It's all in this treasure. Any little strand. I love it when these experts get hold of a, of a piece back to bargain and get hold of a little, a little perhaps a ring or a little bracelet or something and they get the light glass out you know, you know they always go right in their pocket and they say let me tell you about this now for you for me well particularly for me I say oh it looks alright but ah but they're experts and they look at it and say oh now that there is an emerald and that there is a diamond and, and they describe, describe it and they go into great depths of this thing, it looks fairly ordinary to us, well, to me. And there are depths of treasures in the gospel that is glorious. We don't explore these things enough. We don't think, well, what does this mean? And you don't need to be a theologian. You don't need to be a great big Bible supersonic student. Just read it as it is. Look at the context. We preached on ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give us the light, to give us the light of the knowledge of the grace and glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's enough treasure there to keep you going for years. There's so much treasure there. Glorious news, great news about our Savior and His person and His work. The Holy Spirit, his person, his work, the Father, and all that he does in creation and providence. There's so much. And this is, I, I looked at this other day and said, this is too big for me. It's, it's too much for me. I shall just tell him a little bit and let him get on with it. There are riches in this expression, the treasure. And I did a quick little search. Uh, most of you perhaps have got this kind of thing, or you could do it on Google if you like. Do you type in something? You know, I've got a little Bible um, uh, program on my computer. I type in riches, and I can find my search to the New Testament, and that pops all these little verses with riches in. It's, it's very clever. Um, and I, I, I noted down what the Bible says about riches, right? spiritually, because, of course. There's spiritual, there's spiritual riches of, of goodness and forbearance and long-suffering and glory and wisdom and knowledge 
and there's riches in glory, and they buy Christ Jesus. There's riches of full assurance. The Lord Jesus told a little story about the householder who brings out of his treasure, new treasures, old treasures, comes out of his little treasure box, as it were. There's always, always more and more and more. The riches of our inheritance in Christ. And I remembered a verse, and I couldn't find it on my computer, and that's because I'm not that clever, really, and I can't spell very well, and I left the S off. So I found out treasure, but I couldn't find the verse I wanted. And that's because the verse I wanted says treasures. Don't forget the S. Right? It's plural. Remember that? And so when Paul writes to the Colossians, right, this is a lovely little verse. And you know it. I'm sure you all know it, but let me tell you what it is. So Paul is writing to the Colossians, and they're having big problems in Colossae. There are people coming in with false doctrines and teachings, and he's trying to sort it all out. And, and I won't go through all that, but it's, uh, it's very sad. And um, he expresses his concern in chapter 2, verse 1. For I, for I would that you know what great conflict I have for you, and for them I later see you, and for as many as not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted and knit together in love, and unto all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom, in Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We have a big saviour. We really, really do. We have a great saviour. Hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Sometimes we read the Gospels, and and, and I don't know what. Sometimes we, we miss. Uh, we look for the love of the Lord Jesus and the mercy, and it's there all through the Gospels. But I think sometimes there are other things that we we're not looking for. And we miss them because we're not looking for them. The wisdom of the Savior in the way He deals with things. And the way he answers things. I was reading this morning as I'm going through Luke. The Pharisees, they don't like him. They don't like him. He speaks as one as having authority. Uh, uh, people loved him because he spoke as one having authority. Not as the scribes and the Pharisees. They had the words, but they had no authority. Their lives didn't back up what they said. Don't do what I do, do what I tell you. And uh, they don't like. And so they come to the Lord and say, uh, you can imagine them, can't you? Uh, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> uh, by what authority do you do these things? Now, I'd have been tempted to say, on your bike, because you're not interested anyway. And the Lord said, um, well, let me ask you something. By what authority did John the Baptist speak? Oh, I love it. I would, because it's a bit, you know, by what authority did John the Baptist speak? Did, um, and they go out, you can see them having a little aside, you know, and you can see them having a discussion. Ah, um, what are we going to say? If we say, um, it is of men, then this people will stone us because they believe that John was a prophet. If we say um, it came from heaven, he will say, well, why didn't you listen to him? Ah, we've got a problem here. Um, <coughs> well, um, <coughs> um, we can't tell you. Now Jesus says, neither will I tell you. Now go on your bike. I love it. The, the, the ways, you know, when, when, when they ask him questions, what is the greatest commandment? Well, this, and the second, like it. What shall I do in this? And this, and then that. And then the Caesar things here, unto God, the things that are God. And there's so many. The way Jesus deals with things, the wisdom of God in him. Now, there's so many other things we could do, but let me go on and talk about the treasures. Now, so we've got the first two parts. Here are the earthen vessels, clay pots, chipped, cracked, some of them. Here's this treasure. This treasure 
is in these clay pots. Now, you would think such treasure should be in such wonderful vessels. I see there's some discussion on, on uh, what jewels will be used when the king, Charles III, will be crowned in May. All right? And you can imagine it's high-level discussions. What, what jewels, what crowns, what, what, what are we going to have? You know? And somewhere, whether it's in the tower or not, or some deep, dark vault underneath somewhere, um, I don't know. But somewhere these things are kept. And I suspect they're not crept, kept in chipped mugs and pots. I suspect, I could be wrong, they're in velvet um, lined, pure gold, or silver, whatever. They're kept, even the treasures are kept in that which looks like a treasure in of itself. I suspect that. Sometimes you see um, on these antique shows, and they examine a document. But they have gloves, white gloves, because the document is so rare, and you have to carefully handle it with these white gloves because, you know, it's going to be kept under special conditions. Now, this treasure, spiritual treasure, the best the world has ever known, you would think it would be reserved for the very best vessels. And it is not. God puts this treasure, God entrusts this treasure, God deposits this treasure in clay pots. What's he doing? What's he doing? You wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. These chip pots, they're all right. Uh, my, my mugs and chip, they're all right for my garage and my, my old brushes and my bits and pieces. But if I have a dear friend comes and helps you with the garden, I'm not going to give him a chipped mug, am I? I'll bring out the best mug for him. It'll have wheels on it. Make him smile. But God does that. Why does God do that? Well, we haven't got a guess. Because we are told. And this is what Paul says. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Have you got that? That the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Us. It means that the pot, the clay, doesn't get any glory because there is no glory in the pot. The glory is in the gospel, a glorious gospel. And God does the work from beginning to end. And God works in the heart of a sinner to bring him to her to faith. And God keeps them. And at the end, he will bring them all to glory. Every single one to whom he's given the Son in the covenant of grace for whom the Son has died. He will bring everyone to home, to heaven. And everyone will be there 100% because of what God has done. And God will have the glory forever and ever and ever. Hallelujah. Do you get it? Do you get it? That's why it's not a posh vase. You come in, and you're always wonderful vase, and you make much of the vase. You don't care what's in it, because the vase takes all your attention. Not you. You come in, you see this clay pot, and the clay pot is nothing. What's in the pot? Well, this wonderful treasure, and that gets all the glory and all the praise. Now, I'm going to leave you with three little words. Oh, before, before I do that, the word uh, excellent, right? That the excellency um, can be translated exceedingly, superior, incomparable, transplendent, and so forth, all various variations of the word. But the Greek word, which I shall tell you, you know. 
you say, I don't know any Greek. Well, neither do I, but I look things up. And the Greek word is English word, or equivalent English word, hyperbole. Now, of course, you all know what hyperbole is, don't you? Well, I shall tell you. Hyperbole is an English ex- word which means that you say something which is exaggerated to make the point. Okay? So, uh, the uh, uh, concise English dictionary gives an uh, example like, I'm, as, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. Now, it doesn't mean you literally will eat a horse, right? But that's, you, if somebody says, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse, you know they're very hungry. I've been waiting for three hours for this bus. 13 minutes, it hasn't been three hours. It's an exaggeration to prove the point. And that's the word that's used here. But I want to say to you, it's not an exaggeration when it comes to the gospel. We don't have to exaggerate the gospel because it's great enough and supreme enough and splendid enough on its own. It is enough. Yet three little words, and we're going to finish on this. And there are three words, yet not I. God uses the little clay pot to put the treasure in that the, all the power may be of him or the glory may be his. But he does use the clay pot. And we're thankful that he does. Because if he didn't use the clay pot, he'd be all over the place. But the clay pot is useful. Clay pots are useful. Chipped mugs are useful. Come to my garage, I'll show you. Right? They're useful. For this little expression, yet not I. Peter uses it, and sadly, to be honest, because the Lord talks about being delivered and, and going, and all will forsake me. And Peter says, in effect, all will be offended, yet not I. Self-confidence. I'll be there for you. I'll be, everybody else is going to be, I'll be there. And of course he doesn't. Yet not I. Fails. But then the apostle Paul uses it. And that's why we read, or I read, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because Paul uses, uses this phrase. And this is what he says. Um, for I am the least of the apostles. I'm not fitting to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And the grace which is bestowed upon me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yes, I was the least. Yes, I was the last. But God did use me. God gave me grace, gave me, gave me great grace, and I labored, and I labored hard. I worked hard. He, he, he's been honest. He's not been boastful. He's been honest. This is what he was. This is what he did. He was honest in what he done. Don't be false modest. It doesn't become you. And I've never suffered from it. Don't be false modest. Modesty. Oh, no, I don't do much. Don't, that's not God only, because you feel in yourself, oh, yes, but I am really, but, I, but I, I don't like to say so. The least of the apostles. Then he ends with this, yet not I. Have we got it? Yet not I, but the grace of God which is with me. Yet not I. In writing the 2 Corinthians 12, uh, that's the, where we have the my grace is sufficient for you. You know that expression well. And he says this in chapter 12 and verse 5. Except it's not verse 5. Anyway, what he says there is um, that I will glory in these things, all right? Yet not I. Yet not I. The visions he's had, right? He would glory, but yet not I. This is not me. This is not of me. 
And then a famous verse in Galatians 2.20, For I am crucified with Christ. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am crucified with Christ, yet not I. Can you say that? You must always say that. At the end of the day, you must say, I've done what I've done for the Lord. I trust I've been faithful. I've done this, I've done that. Yet not I. Don't take any glory. Don't take any praise of men that is inappropriate. If somebody thanks you, smile. Because when you know it's God's doing. Thank you, Pastor, for the word. That's fine. Yet not I. Thank you for your help. Fine, that's okay. Yet not I. Dear ones, let this be your little motto. Yet not I. You've got the treasure in the earthen vessels. That the glory and the praise and the power may be of God, not of us. Paul, why do you need to repeat it? Wasn't it enough to say the power of God? Wasn't it enough to say um, that the excellency of the power may be of God? Full stop. No, I'm going to put a comma there because I'm going to add, and not of us. It's not of us. Have you got that? It's not of us. It's not of you. It's not of me. It's not of us. Yet not I. That God might have the glory and the praise and the honor. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at this little verse because it contains us. We are in this verse. If we are believers in the Lord Jesus, if we trust in him alone, by faith alone, we are in this verse. We are the earthen vessels. We are the clay pots. What a privilege to be a clay pot for Jesus. We may be a bit chipped around the edges. We may be a bit cracked. But Lord, you can use us as you please, when you please, how you please. And we want to be used. We have this treasure, the best treasure, the best riches that ever this world could know. The glorious gospel of the blessed God. Oh, use us. And when you've done so, grant us to be careful to give all the glory and the praise to you that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Amen. Amen. Right. If I can find my hymn book, I shall read... First verse of the last hymn, 644. 644. It's in the section entitled The Christian Life, Peace and Joy. How vast the treasure we possess, how rich thy bounty, King of grace. The world is ours and worlds to come. Earth is our lodge and heaven our home. 644.
better than a thousand. We'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of our God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Thank you for the privilege of being here with your people and your word, singing your praises, worshipping your great name. Thank you, Father. And now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the sweet fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit rest upon God's people here and everywhere until he shall come, and then forevermore. Amen.